Welcome to the Market Pulse podcast from Equifax, where we break down the latest economic and credit insights to help you navigate today's business landscape. Welcome to episode 13 of our Market Pulse podcast from Equifax. We're two years beyond the start of the pandemic, and now we're seeing additional factors affecting consumers, including supply chain shortage impacts, rising inflation, global conflicts, and the end of various relief packages, or the impending end of relief of those packages. So how will this impact consumer credit usage and access to credit? We'll dig in deeper to that today. I'm Catherine Doe. I'm a director of product marketing for our risk solutions here at Equifax, and I'm glad to be back as host. Joining me today are two experts perfectly aligned for our topic. We're welcoming back David Fieldhouse, Director of Predictive Analytics at Moody's Analytics, and we're glad to have for the first time to this series, Jeff Hollander, Credit Practice Manager at InvestNet Yodely. And it's glad to have you both. Um, I'm going to toss over to David first um, so we can try to get a bigger look um, at the bigger picture. Uh, We're headed into the summer. uh, It's travel season. And I know everyone's eager to get back to normal and back to travel and their traditions. Um, I know this doesn't necessarily coincide nicely with all of the impacts to consumer wallets as of late with gas prices, inflation. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what are you and uh, Moody's Analytics seeing in terms of economic trends? Um, and then maybe we can move after that to uh, the consumer credit trends that you're seeing as well. Yeah, uh, well, in the data we have, we're definitely seeing consumers feeling the squeeze from inflation. Uh, In the last year, uh, incomes really haven't kept up. Uh, Real after-tax income has only grown in two months uh, in the the last year. So consumers are, uh, you know, feeling the squeeze uh, from inflation. Uh, The impact is significant. Uh, The average household is going to pay about $317 to buy the same stuff this year as they would have bought last year, right? So that's a real uh, impact from uh, inflation. Uh, The good news is that inflation is showing signs of peaking. Uh, CPI increased in April, uh, but it was only 0.3%. And that's higher than usual, but it's much better than it was in March and February. In March, we saw a 1.2% gain, and in February, it was a 0.8%. Gain. So things are moving in the right direction at, at, when we look at some of the data points. The, the moderation is really coming from energy prices. So if, if you are booking some some travel down the road, it, uh, you, you might benefit from uh, that moderation that's actually starting to show up in the data. But be careful because other components like food and beverages are, are posting uh, solid gains and that's helping prop up inflation. I think most importantly, uh, inflation expectations have fallen back in recent weeks, and they're consistent with inflation soon receding. When we look at bond investors, uh, they price in inflation. We we look at um, how they're viewing inflation, and you know they would have uh, been working off the assumption of about a three percent increase in inflation one year out from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but that's started to fall back to 2.5%. So that's in the upper end of the Fed's target for CPI inflation. Uh, and then if, if we think take a step back to the, the economy overall and thinking about how that's impacting the economy, uh, well, we can see that the Fed is a bit behind on inflation. The labor market uh, is extremely tight uh, right now. And that's going to make it very, very tricky to actually rein in inflation expectations. So we've already seen interest rates increase. Uh, we've yet to see the, the unemployment rate increase in response, which is a good sign. But tightening monetary policy to tame inflation without causing an increase in unemployment, the unemployment rate is really difficult. And so it's possible 
uh, that the Fed will push the economy into a mild recession. We're not, I want to be careful, we're not predicting that a recession will happen, uh, but we put the odds at about one in three in the next year. So it's it's something that we're concerned about. And then on the bright side, Catherine, you highlighted some of the things moving in, in the right direction, right? The pandemic continues to, to fade. And then we're also seeing the economic fallout from the Russian aggression is, is moving behind us. And then household balance sheets are in, in good shape. We estimate that Households saved about $2.5 trillion in excess savings. And so that's the level of savings above the rate that they were making prior to the pandemic. So consumers have uh, good balance sheets. You know, if we look at the credit data, we can see that delinquency rates remain low almost uh, in all product categories. There's, you know, a couple pockets where we're uh, concerned about when we look at, you know, subprime auto, for instance, or some personal loans, we've seen some delinquency rates rise a bit quicker there, but almost every other product category has uh, very low uh, delinquency rates, not record lows. They, they've come up a bit since um, last year, but uh, they, they're in really great shape. And so debt is very manageable. It was taken out at low interest rates and financial obligations are, you know, in a macro sense at near record lows. So we feel very good uh, about where the um, household balance sheets are. And, and we know that interest rates are increasing, but uh, the good thing with de- debt in the United States is only about a fifth of the household debt interest payments will change if the market rates do. So household balance sheets are, are really in great shape that even if there is some turmoil in the uh, job market, consumers have some wherewithal to, to withstand that and hopefully make their debt payments going forward. So thanks for that overview, David. That was really thorough. Um, I did want to dig in a little bit further. You mentioned one or, or maybe many um, populations or score bands could be affected a little bit more than others in terms of rising delinquencies. So uh, what can you tell us about those in particular? Yeah, uh, well, we are seeing some of the impacts of inflation hitting different populations of the uh, economy. Uh, when we look at, uh, you know, and this is our, our big concern is that, you know, there, there are, you know, we see top line inflation numbers, but we have to remember that the basket of goods that different populations consume uh, is different. And uh, we know that certain segments of uh, the consumer basket are, are seeing prices rise quite uh, substantially, right? So we're, we're concerned about the uneven rise in inflation rates. Uh, we've looked at different CPI estimates for, for different groups, and you know we see that you know middle and lower income individuals typically have spend more money on food and energy related products, and that causes their inflation rate to jump higher. There, there's also large jumps in the inflation rate for Gen Z compared to other age groups. Um, Gen Z typically spends a lot of their money on, on gasoline, or, or or more so than the average person would. Among other racial groups, the um, uh, we can see that Hispanic and Black households are really spending a lot more money on uh, food and at home, gasoline and utilities. In, in, the, in comparison to Asian and white households, we're seeing uh, Hispanic and Black household inflation rates increase uh, faster in recent months. So those are, are, are a couple of the populations that we are, we are worried about. If you think about tying that to uh, credit bands, where uh, we can expect to see that typically lower bands uh, will be um, have more have lower incomes, and and we'd expect that to be associated with higher inflation rates. So that's definitely a concern. And then 
we, if we look at the popu- the credit population, we look at mortgage holders versus uh, non-mortgage holders, you know, or homeowners versus renters, we would expect to see that homeowners might be a little bit more insulated from uh, the higher inflation, whereas if you're a renter, right, you're going to be probably exposed to higher rents next year. So uh, these are some of the segments I think that we're, we're quite concerned about when we look at the credit trends. Mm, thank you. And, and looking maybe just a, a little bit further out um, into the data, how would we expect um, continuing student loan payments once all deferments are up? If that happens, say, by September, do you think these populations will be affected even further? Is that the assumption? Yeah, I, I definitely think that uh, will play a role. I mean, at least with the student loan population, they may have ha- potentially have higher income levels than some of these other the other uh, other populations. So it's a little bit depends on on who um, who, who we're talking about. But um, if the student, you know, if, if somebody who took out debt, student loan debt, a couple years ago has been able to raise their their income and benefit from really a tight labor market, they might be able to to make those payments and, and, and they'd be quite manageable. Uh, but inevitably, there's going to be some people have to start making payments again. Uh, and you would expect to see that they might not be prepared for it, right? And so you could probably see some some higher delinquency rates. It's definitely helping the other lenders out there, you know, the non-student lenders, the auto lenders, the mortgage lenders, right? Because um, they don't have to compete for, for those uh, repayment dollars, if you will. So, uh, so, so we'll see. I think delinquency rates will definitely rise when uh, student loan payments re- resume. I think that's um, inevitable. And so uh, thinking bigger picture here, uh, I think this is a good segue uh, to you, Jeff, um, in, in thinking about uh, Investnet Yodli and what do we do next? What, what do we do about being able to open opportunities for uh, credit access? And if we are in a position where these score bands and consumers are, are needing access to credit, how can we help them? And so first, I think maybe we just start off. I would love to get an introduction to you, Jeff, and, and maybe your elevator pitch for Investnet and Yodley. Okay, sure. Thank you. So Investnet Yodley is the oldest and biggest data aggregator of bank data, uh, credit card data, basically consumer data, um, which is consumer permission. The consumer says, we're opting into this. You can use my data for certain functions, whether it be uh, personal financial management, whether it be facilitating payment to payment functionality or credit decisioning. Um, we will take that raw transaction data and categorize it and do you know amazing things with it. And now the space is ripe for using the bank data in the credit underserved market. And it's a very large underserved market. Approximately 125 million people are underserved. That's You'll hear different numbers, but that's the one I'm going with, of which 50-some million are what they call unscorable. They can't get a traditional credit bureau risk score, either the thin file or no file at the credit bureau. But it doesn't mean they're not using uh, financial planning, they're not taking care of their finances, but how do you take that into account? The other 70-some million are subprime, near prime that David was talking about. Every risk score band has good people in it, good credit risks in it, right? It's, it's never all or nothing. So how do you find them on top of traditional credit data, and that's where the aggregated bank data can can fill in the void uh, and make the subprime near prime applicant, give them a second chance to get approved for the loan, uh, get approved for a credit card, and the thin file, no file, give them credit for how they're handling the finances outside of a traditional credit report. So the data aggregation process is opening up to a, approximately 125 million potential people. And all lenders today want to approve more loans, but they have to do it intelligently. They have to do with compliance. They have to do model risk. They have to do regulators. They have to be smart about it. 
And using this data, customer permission data, I think is the best way to go right now. It's interesting. Um, and do you feel like uh, the, the, the path of the pandemic um, has increased the, the number of consumers that are interested in participating in this and banks looking for it? Uh, it have you seen growth in that area? Yeah, and it's, it's really part of it is regulatory driven. So I think it was December of 2019, the five main regulators, the, the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, the NCUA, the, the, the CFPB, put out a memo saying, look at bank data. Use this in helping to underwrite loans and cards for people who are normally ignored. Then you had Project Reach come out, an OCC-driven initiative that wants people to start looking at cash flows out of bank data to help approve more loans. So you have the whole regulatory environment. You do have the pressure to grow, you know, internally, um, but how do you how do you safely do it? You ha- again, you have to be safe about it. So between the regulatory push, the desire to grow, in an empirical fashion, you can look at how they're handling their finances. And if you think about it, the traditional credit bureaus are great showing intent to pay, but aggregated data, how you handle your finances in, in your bank account, show your uh, ability to pay. What's your monthly cash flow? How much do you have o- left over every month? How are you handling all those different types of bills? Um, do you have more than one source of income? You, and particularly with COVID, a lot of people are doing the gig economies. Um, it's waking back up again. They might have three jobs. You can capture all that from a bank account aggregation process. So I think that is what's really driving it. It's both regulatory and the desire to grow, but do it intelligently. It feels like now is a natural time to start thinking about that. And you know, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but if, if uh, I think most of our listeners are probably more on the um, financial service provider side, but just to give uh, the full scope and picture of, of how consumers participate in this, uh, how, how can we get more people to raise their hand and say they want to, to opt in? How can we get more consumers to open up that data to be considered uh, for increases and in approvals? Part of it is the financial service provider has to have a good strategy around deploying these solutions to the consumer who's applying. You have to do it at the right time in the process. You have to actually wordsmith it properly to get them excited about putting in their banking credentials. The one carrot on the end of the stick is if you say, you know, you can still get this loan if you do this, that gives them financial incentive to do it. But you're never going to get 100% to say yes. But you can get a very high success rate now. Um, because they want that auto loan. They want that credit card. They want that product. So I think that helps. Um, but a lot of it is a financial service provider has to think through the entire user experience to get them to click and say yes. So it, it is you know, just like any digital thing you have on your phone or whatever you're doing, it's thought through. It's, it's you know, test and control and what's the best way to present it and what's, what's going to get you the most success rate. Uh, so it is, it's a lot of user experience testing. And I know we have made some um, huge strides in, in terms of digitization after COVID and everyone being home. And um, it, it was almost a necessity. Um, it was a necessity for, for so many so many providers. So uh, looking ahead a little bit, let's say a, a year or two, do you anticipate or does InvestNet Yieldly, where, where are you thinking will be in terms of this consumer consumer permission data? Um, will it be factored into most every decision? What, what's the future look like? Uh, in a year, probably not in every decision. Um, but I will say the growth of using this alternative type of data in credit decisioning is 
very a very steep curve right now. I think it will eventually become industry practice. You know that everyone's going to do this. It's going to be part of the underwriting process, because if you think about the common sense of it, if someone comes to you and says, "I want this loan, I want this car, I want this credit card," and you say no, but you did have an opportunity to say yes if you added this one layer on to the decisioning process, why wouldn't you? I mean, that someone wants your product. Someone wants to give you know take pay you interest. So why wouldn't you take that one step more? Um, so I think that's slowly coming about, but it's new. Um, and being an old risk manager myself, it takes a while to get everyone nodding their heads and saying, okay, this is safe, we can do this. Uh, because there are other regulators who are going to walk in the front door and making sure you're doing it right. Um, so it, it's going to take time. Uh, anytime you're introducing analytics into a bank, a financial service provider, it takes time. The year isn't the right answer. But two to three years, I think, is. Okay, that's great insight. Um, and I kind of want to turn back over to, to you, David, and, and what the uh, Moody's perspective might be on, on what this additional data might do for um, consumer wallets and, and what, what you foresee the future looking like. I think it's great. Uh, we, we definitely need to figure out how to give people more access to credit. Uh, I was looking at some statistics from the uh, Fed uh, Survey of Consumer Expectations, and, and the, you know the, there are a fair number of re- uh, people who expect to be rejected from getting a loan. Uh, I was looking at auto loans, it's 26%, credit cards is 31%, mortgages is 38%. Now, imagine that you could take in some of this other data that, that Jeff is speaking about and actually... Uh, you know, bring it into the lending decision and, and give those people more confidence. They may not even be applying, right? Now you can actually give them uh, uh, some confidence to actually apply. So I, I think I think it's great. And then there there's all kinds of um, impacts if you don't have a have credit. Maybe you can't get a credit score. Um, this affects certain minority populations as well. So uh, I think you know beyond just the average wallet, I think this makes you know society a little bit more uh, equitable. Which uh, and I think there's a lot of benefit from that. And so I, I look forward to more of this data being used in the uh, decisioning process. Yeah, and I, I think that for sure makes the three of us, since this really is, um, in many ways, changing lives. Uh, you know, for, for some people, it's it's not just a car, but it's a way to get to work and um, change the position that they could be in, and especially talking about under underserved markets. Um, well, thank you both for being here today. Uh, we really appreciate all your, your input and your time um, dedicated to Market Pulse. For our listeners today who'd like to learn more about InvestNet Yodley or CreditForecast.com, our joint offering with Moody's Analytics, please be sure to check the show notes for our episode links. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are intended as general guidance only and are subject to change without notice. The views presented during the podcast are those of the presenter as of the date this podcast was recorded and do not necessarily reflect official positions of Equifax. Investor analysts should direct inquiries using the contact us box on the investor relations section at Equifax.com.